Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5, or tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome back to Wholehearted Eating. So on today's episode, we are unpacking nutrition for autoimmune disease and discussing how we can manage autoimmune disease without the all or nothing functional medicine mentality. We're discussing how can we incorporate evidence-based nutrition information into our lives when we're struggling with a chronic health condition without it becoming perfectionistic or dogmatic, especially if you have a history of an eating disorder, disordered eating, or you struggle with your relationship with food or an all-or-nothing mentality, which, as we would argue, most people do or have at least at some point in their lives. And then how do you know and how do you decide even if these evidence-based guidelines are appropriate and safe for you to put into practice. And then lastly, what do you do if you don't even know where to start with all of this? Join us on this episode to find out. One last thing before we get started. So in case you missed it, if you're listening to this at the time of recording, we hosted a meal planning power hour last week where Christina and I shared our client tested and proven strategies on how to meal plan in a non-diet, non-restrictive way and how to make food more easily accessible and available without food paralysis or decision fatigue. So if you are interested in checking it out, it's over on our Patreon, which will be linked in the show notes. And there you're going to get either or both an audio or video format, totally up to you, plus the 30-page <laughs> wholehearted eating meal planning guide. It is not 30 pages of a to-do list. It is a couple of pages explaining the different modalities for how we teach you how to meal plan. And then the rest of it is just stuff for you to either choose to print out, laminate, put on your fridge, and then just resources that you can use going forward. So if you are interested in checking that out, the link will be in the show notes. And then without any further ado, let's jump into the episode. Today we're going to be talking about autoimmune disease, and this also can be applied to chronic symptoms, chronic everything management, when there's some component of nutrition that tends to be involved, right? So whether it's autoimmune disease, chronic health conditions, chronic symptoms, or you're just dealing with a lot of stuff and you're like, hey, what can I do about this? You know, like what is within my control, basically? What I was going to say, in addition to what you were describing, because it is all of those things things too. But I almost feel like some of those things make us feel like we probably have an autoimmune disease. And I think it's a lot of times some of the things that we're going to be talking about is for the people who are like, is this an autoimmune disease that I'm dealing with here? Because they can feel so like, like almost like you're playing some like tic-tac-toe game of like what's going on here or like some kind of chest like some kind of game with trying to figure out where things are so especially if you don't have it this is not necessarily for just people who have an, a, a diagnosed autoimmune disease yeah for sure and right. a lot yeah. of this episode you'll see as we're talking about this is a yes and and a lot of it is like mm-hmm. a um actually let's take a pause here and see what's going on and the, the first part of this, Pump the yeah, yeah, 
the first part of this yes <laughs> and is yes, autoimmune diseases are on the rise, both because more people are getting diagnosed because diagnostic tools are getting better, but also because a lot of things are happening in just like the world and society in general, including like increasing rates of burnout and gut issues with both, which both can contribute to the development of autoimmune stuff. And there's also a huge rise in the kind of fear mongering and specifically around term like health and wellness and different kind of lifestyle things that you quote can do to manage your autoimmune disease. And we're not saying that all of those are invalid, but what, one of the things that we wanted to kind of bring home today is like, this is really confusing. All of it is really confusing, even for clinicians breaking down the research, which we're going to go a little bit into today, but like not too deep because you could be like me and go down like a two to six hour rabbit hole of research and still be confused afterwards. Um, and it's really hard to kind of sort through all of it, especially when it's hard to be an objective in a situation or to be objective in a situation because it's you, right? So this is why it's really helpful to hire a practitioner to help you sort through all of this stuff. But it's also really important to do your research on practitioners before you go see somebody, right? Because Christine and I can probably count on every single appendage that we have times 20, the number of people that have come to us saying, you know, I went to a doctor, a functional medicine doctor, uh, whoever it was, right. Some kind of practitioner because they thought they had either some autoimmune disease or some other chronic health condition or symptoms that they were trying to resolve. And then the person put them on a severely restrictive diet. And now there's not only fear around eating those foods, but there's also a question of like, well, did this ever even work in the first place? But now you have this very complicated relationship with these foods and these different supplements and everything like that. And you're left wondering like, did it work? Did it not work? How am I supposed to know? Because there can be a little bit of gaslighting going on too, which is not great, but yeah, Christina, you go. Cause I've been tangenting a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was honestly thinking too, like, I also want to say also, which we've said before, but even we are guilty of this, right? We evolve practitioners and we've done things too. And we, and I think that's part of the reason why we evolved, at least I'll speak for myself, but I know for you, Dana, I know that was a big part of your evolution too, but huh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, we started to realize that like, wait, where is the research here? How do I define evidence-based? Which is funny because I said that to Casey the other day. I was like, he said, how do you describe yourself an evidence-based nutritionist? And he said, aren't you guys all evidence-based? And I said- No, you oh. would think so, but- <laughs> One would think, but <laughs> <laughs> that is not entirely true. And one of the things that Dana and I were laughing about before this episode was like a lot of things people can find anything to confirm what they believe, ourselves included, right? Like yeah. we can do research things and then look at it and say, this is the objective that I want my client to get from this, right? And our own bias goes into it. Like, all right, I'm going to read this research. This is what I think it is. This is what I'm going to selectively share and then leave all of the rest of it out because it doesn't support the argument that I'm going to do. Think about every college essay you ever wrote. Like that was <laughs> literally the point. support your argument. Yeah. Yeah. It's like literally that was what we were taught and how we were to, to approach it. But I was laughing with Dana beforehand because I was thinking about 
if you watch Sex and the City and the, like, the original thing, there was this time when Charlotte was talking about how she believed that there were actually two soulmates and she had always said the beginning that there was only one and Miranda turned to her and said where did you find that out convenient theories for you.com and I like every time I think about it or I read some kind of research I'm always like all right how convenient is this one piece of evidence this one piece of research to support this person's argument. And like, I think that's one thing I think you can take from today's episode is that when you go down Dr. Blogs and you like start reading about all this different stuff, you have to think about the objective, the, the perspective, the, um, like the biases that the person might have. Right. And so one of the things that me and Dana have been really working on, Dana a lot because she likes to beautifully mind, go into the research and like summarize it and go bonkers. So let's all thank Dana for doing the hard work for us. <laughs> but but one of the things that me and Dana really try to work on is looking at everything from all of the different sides and saying like, okay, can this be yes and? Like, can this nutritional intervention be supportive, but maybe not as much as they say that it's going to? Or is the line like direct or is there like maybe just possibly a correlation? And then how do you decide for yourself what is worth implementing and what's worth kind of saying like, okay, cool. I see what's going on here and I'm going to move on and I'm going to ignore that. Um, or like, that's not for me, which we're going to get into. And I think now I'm going on a tangent, but I think we get the point of, yeah. <laughs> of, what, of what we're doing. So my, like one of the things that me and Dana really wanted to talk about today was how do we trust anything that someone is telling us if they're throwing kind of random non-evidence-based things along with the research that they're tacking on to. And it makes it really hard to discern, do I believe all of this at face value or do I believe none of it at all? Or is it somewhere in the middle? And this is what makes things really confusing, right? So I'll give an example. I've been doing a lot of autoimmune thyroid research this week, and there's an extremely popular thyroid book from 13 years ago, let's say, right? And we're not here to drag anybody. And <laughs> when <laughs> I was getting so aggravated reading this book yesterday, because one of the things that Christina and I like to do, like she mentioned, is we want to try and see things from all sides because let's talk about objectives, right? Like our objective is to present you information in a way that is as neutral as possible. So you can decide what you want to do with that. Because even let's say 87 studies and systematic reviews and meta-analyses and all of the things, which is basically scientific jargon for like, yeah, a lot of people and the studies agree that X cutting out X food is going to be super, super helpful for whatever condition. If that was true based on all of the research and all of the things, then our objective as non-diet, non-restrictive practitioners is okay. 
how do we marry that with the fact that restricting food is not appropriate for 90% of the clients that we work with, if not more, right? So then our job as practitioners is to figure out one, is this actually true? And then how can this be applied to our clients without triggering a whole bunch of binge restrict cycles and huge stress and burnout and all the things, which can also make your symptoms worse. So going back to that thyroid book, right, is I'll be reading through this and this is where they get you, right? Because a lot of these functional medicine people and, you know, even different researchers and stuff will have the whole, you know, front matter of their book, which is like all of the pieces that they're writing and explaining thyroid physiology and blah, 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 and all the different things. And basically their analysis and recommendations. And then they'll have a huge section in the back for references and so many different references per chapter and everything like that. And to the regular person, you might flip to the back and be like, oh my gosh, there's so much research in here. Like this must be, you know, the gold standard. Like this must be a great book and a very evidence-based, which that's not to say that the book isn't evidence-based because they are using research. But what's really interesting is sometimes, now this is not for everybody, right? This is just one specific instance that I've seen multiple times, but (laughs) (laughs) reading different things in the book It'll make some claim and then I'll flip back to the end of the book and look at the studies that they're citing and the studies don't match up with the claim that they're making. I'm like, well, if you actually gave what the study was saying, I would believe that more. But what makes this even more confusing is when you look in the references, they'll have, you know, like two verified studies that you can find on NIH, NIH, PubMed, all these different places right after like some random ass blog posts. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, you're citing mm-hmm. something, but this is some random ass blog post from like 2003. And then if you look that up, it doesn't even exist anymore. And you're like, okay, well, how, how am I supposed to take, going back to what Christina was saying, how am I supposed to believe anything that you're saying if we have you know verified scientific evidence on one line and then the next line is like some person's random blog post testimonial or something like that and as a clinician that's really frustrating because it seems very kind of deceiving in the way that the information is being presented especially because in different sections of these books and this is pretty prevalent i would say in a lot of different kind of what we would call like functional medicine kind of textbooks that people cite all the time, you know, grain brain and wheat belly and like all of the different things like that. And then also cookbooks that veer towards the, we're also going to give you the science up front, which is cool, but also they're clearly in those cookbook example, trying to go towards a specific end, right? If they're advocating for like the paleo diet and stuff in all of their recipes, and they want you to buy the book because it's going to be the miracle that fixes everything. Then of course, all of the evidence and stuff that they're going to present to you in the beginning of the book is going to be the means to that end. But it just becomes very, very confusing because in these different books, when you're presented with the very objective anatomy or physiology of like, this is how the body works. And this is how the body converts T4 into T3 and thyroid hormones and blah, blah, blah. And then they'll also make this wild claim. That's like, and this is why everyone has to eliminate this food, or it's going to destroy your thyroid. And it's like, can we take 27 steps back? Because that is a wild claim to make. And also is extremely fear-mongering and very confusing for someone who is not necessarily very research literate or isn't doing a ton of deep dive research like I was doing this week 
because it's presented right next to this. The gut is where the body uh, converts 20% of your T4 thyroid hormone to your T3 thyroid hormone. It's real confusing. It is so confusing. And I think too, like one of the things also that I'm thinking about, like that layers into the confusion that you're describing is when you're reading this book, it also lists down like 50 symptoms that like, (laughs) that like most of us can be like, yo, I feel tired and I feel this and, oh, my knees are creaky. I don't know what that's about. (laughs) And like all these different things, like we might think about like, oh, I get headaches or I have this thing going on, or I've had abnormal, like, whatever it is that's coming up for you that you might be seeing. And so it's really easy to then read it and be like, ah, finally, and especially when you feel like those symptoms are ignored, or you want to use more like less, you know, medicine forward approaches to try to managing some of these things, because you believe that like, and understandably, we believe it too. Food can play a really great role in supporting your overall health and vitality, like, and in the management and the support of those symptoms that you're feeling. So when reading it, it'd be really hard to not be like, oh my God, thank God I found it. They get me, they see it, they know what's going on. And so then you're thinking to yourself, well, I haven't removed that food. Maybe this is the ticket. Maybe this is the thing that is actually going to change everything. And like, as Dana are saying, maybe it might be true for you or it might not be true for you at all. And you've gone down a road of eliminating something and now you're scared about it. And you now think that this one thing is the reason why you're feeling those 50 different symptoms that you're experiencing. And that can make it even more alluring to then say, no, I'm going to latch on to this. Yeah. And, you know, we also want to validate that a lot of the clients that come to us have fallen through this exact same situation. And we understand because we were also there, right? Like that <laughs> was my initial journey into this field and my own health journey. Cause I was having all of these different health issues. I went to my primary care. I went to a GI, I had a bunch of testing done and they were like, Oh, it's inflammation. You're fine. Right. And so then you kind of take your health into your own hands and you start doing all your different research. And then you go to some kind of, I'm speaking from my own experience that I find duplicated in a lot of clients, right? You go to some, you know, functional medicine doctor or something like that. And then whether it's from your own research or it's a recommendation from a practitioner, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, I have this thing because I've finally spent money on all of this expensive testing. And now if I want to make sure that like I do everything possible to try and control this outcome, which is symptoms or quality of life or anything like that, I need to cut out all these foods. I need to add in all these supplements. I need to do, you know, all these different things, but that, and you know, the, the catch 22 of this is like, it might work initially. And you're like, oh my gosh, I feel so good. And you know, anything like that, the, obviously the exception is celiac disease, where it's like a lifelong thing that you, you need to take out gluten. Right. But when it's something like thyroid or adrenals, or it's PCOS, or it's, you know, a a whole bunch of these other different hormonal conditions or autoimmune conditions, we're going to have someone on next week to talk about MS with this. And it just gets really, really confusing because then when you start to, let's say you've followed some protocol for X number of months. And then, 
you can't keep doing it because, oh, I don't know, it's not sustainable and not compatible with your life and extremely stressful to, and expensive to cut out all these foods and buy all these specialized foods and everything. The crazy thing is then you start to feel like, oh, it's my fault because I fell off this protocol and that's why my symptoms are getting worse. When really it could have been, you were just kind of in the honeymoon period of your body's like, whoa, this is a big change. And actually this feels pretty good. But then when your body gets used to it, it's like, just kidding. This isn't going to work for us anymore. Or maybe it had nothing to do with that at all. And you were finally eating enough and maybe your stress in your life got changed or something else happened or like any of the 75 million other things that contribute to how we're feeling physically. But we put so much stake in this one thing because we've read this book or we've read this blog and we trust the source. We trust that they are presenting their information. But when we take a step back, we have to then say like, why am I accepting certain things to be true versus what might actually be true and how I can manage and support this? And I think that can be I don't know, I'm just shaking my head. So unbelievably hard to navigate and to try to figure that out, especially when you're in the weeds. If I had been told this when I was in the thick of my stuff, I would have been like, that's great, but something's up. Like, and no one's listening to me and no one's getting it. And so I feel like I'm navigating this whole world on my own. Um, so I just, we just want you to know, we get you, we see you and we know how hard this is. And we want to help present the information to you and in a way that you can decide through what we call our prerequisites to neutral nutrition. Like how do we implement these things in a way that's safe and evidence-based and thinking about your long-term mental, mental and physical health all at the same time. Yeah. Because leading into what we call our prerequisites, right? One of the reasons this is so confusing is because on one end of this spectrum, you have what we call kind of like the very dogmatic food is medicine people. It's very all or nothing. Like either your what they would say is like, either you're eating like shit and all these different inflammatory foods, or you're eating like squeaky clean, la la la, like organic ice basically. And then on the other end of things, you have people who are like, no, all of the research that they use is fake. And therefore nutrition doesn't play any role whatsoever in this and just do whatever you want. And we're like, well, hold on. (laughs) Like there can be aspects of both. And as we are always trying to do is teach you how to analyze this for yourself and how to kind of meet those things in the middle. It can be yes. And There's never a yes and to like, oh yes, we approve of all of the restriction. No, but we also are not like, well, just throw everything out the window and just see what happens. Because like we've mentioned multiple times and Christina has called out on this episode is like food can play a role, but it's not going to cure your autoimmune disease. It's not going to cure cancer. It's not going to do any of these things. Right. And so we want to figure out where is the middle ground and how does this apply to you? So the way that I explain this to my clients, because we're never going to give you a, and especially not 
on the podcast, this is for general information purposes only, right? It's like, we're not giving you a, like, this is the path you need to follow. Like you need to do this protocol or like, no, absolutely not. No one should ever do these kinds of protocols. These prerequisites are basically like, how do you figure out if this is even applicable to you and if it's safe for me and anything like that? So I use the analogy of like a college level course or graduate classes or anything like that. You have to take the prerequisites before we get to even the 101 level, right? You have to take the prerequisites before we get to the 401, 701 level of like, oh, should I do this therapeutic protocol for thyroid disease or blah, blah, blah. The first thing that we need to do is take it back to basics. And the prerequisites for that are, are you eating enough is the first one. Are your baseline nutritional needs being met? And a lot of people get stuck here because let me tell you one hard truth, right? Like you might think you're eating enough, but that is different than if you see a practitioner who is looking out for your best needs and not trying to restrict you and trying to help you with not only are your baseline nutritional needs being met, but are you meeting nutritional needs in order to like live a thriving and good and healthy life? is way different than like, are you eating your basics? Yeah, 100%. I think that's one of the, especially if you have an eating disorder. So I think about a lot of my clients, we stay here for Mm -hmm. a really long time of just getting comfortable with eating enough or just getting comfortable with doing phase two, like number two that we're going to get to. But I think one of the things that I tell clients, and I think this is something that everyone can take and execute at home is we need to make sure that we're eating enough so that we're thriving and not meeting our minimum standards. And at the same time, that will then tell us what's still hanging out afterwards. That's what I tell my clients. Let's make sure we're doing these things first. Let's start making sure that we're eating enough, that we're getting this place. And then let's see what's going on afterwards. Am I still getting headaches? Okay, what's going on? Let's take a look at that. Is it this? Is it that? And then we can start to bring in these other kind of therapeutic and nutritional interventions and support and these tools to then support you. But first, like Dana's saying, it has to be, am I getting what I need to not just survive, but to thrive. And that is sometimes a really difficult place because insert body image here, insert, you know, disordered eating patterns, insert a strong exercise and not being, you know, like a lot of exercise and stuff like that. It gets really complicated. So you might hang out here and need a lot of support in just this one step, but these are the prerequisites before we can really dive into it. Yeah. And It's really hard to be objective in, am I eating enough? Especially because if you have a chronic health condition and eating disorder, disordered eating, body image stuff, a heavy history of dieting. So basically if you're listening to this podcast, you probably fit into at least one of those categories, right? But it makes it Yeah, right. If you've been personally victimized by any of those things, but when you have any or all of those conditions that we were just talking about, it's really hard to be in tune with your body and figure out what are my hunger and fullness cues? Like what are the other cues that my body could be sending me that I'm either eating enough or not eating enough, especially if you have a history of suppressing those cues, which we probably all do at some point, which then 
brings it to the next prerequisite, which again, recap first was eating enough. Second is, are you eating consistently? So this means you're not fasting, you're not skipping meals, whether that's intentional or not. And only when you're eating consistently, and this does not mean, oh, well, I eat dinner every night. Yes, that you are consistent about eating dinner. But what we mean is, are you eating consistently throughout the day to support your energy and your blood sugar levels and all of those different things? And some people, this is why this comes second, because there will be people who are like, oh, especially in the the fasting and the keto world and everything who literally only eat dinner or like only eat lunch and dinner. And like, there will say stuff like, oh, well, calorically, you know, this is sufficient or blah, blah, blah. But (laughs) fasting or skipping meals wreaks havoc on your cortisol levels. So then the question becomes, are your blood sugar issues because you're eating a cupcake or are your blood sugar issues because you're not eating consistently? And then are you eating enough consistently is kind of the third prerequisite there, which we need to check off before, before we can go to 200, 300, 400 level courses. Yeah. Someone might say I eat throughout the day, but they might not be eating nearly enough food throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like when you describe like the fasting type of mentality is like, oh, I'm eating enough calorically within this window of time but I'm not doing it consistently. And I think that those two things together, am I eating enough and am I eating consistently? And I'm just gonna throw this out there. You're probably not going to be objective about this. Mm -hmm. Because this is where all the gobbledygook comes in. All the (laughs) gobbledygook comes in. All the gobbledygook is right here. The gobbledygook is here. It's coming to the table. It's coming to your plate. It's, It's in your mind when you're going to the refrigerator all of the things of like, why am I always eating? It's like, I don't know, maybe you're always eating because you're supposed to eat multiple times a day and multiple snacks throughout the day to support your body's energy. And that's not something that we're used to hearing. Like we're not used to that. And so I think this is where all the, like I said, the gobbledygook comes in with like the body stuff. It's like, well, I can't eat that much because I'll my body will change. Um, I can't eat that consistently because I'm doing this thing. It's like, okay, well, why are we doing this thing? Oh, because I'm trying to lose weight. The gobbledygook, the gobbledygook comes in. And so we have to take away one of the things that I talk about a lot with my clients is we have to take out the, the desired outcome that a lot of us are carrying with the gobbledygook. The gobbledygook is the desired outcome of losing weight or being at a smaller size. And so when we think about this outcome, really nothing that we're doing is objective. When we have that there, nothing that we're doing is objective. It's going to be subjective to this desired outcome. And then we can go to conveniennttheoriesforyou.com and we can (laughs) plug in all the things all the things that we want. And then we're saying it's evidence-based and it's really great, but really you have to think, and this is where it's really hard to be this objective for yourself because it's hard to go, to go there. But am I doing this because I want to control my body or why? Like, what am I doing? And why is this something that I'm latching onto? Why is it more natural for me to love something that says to take something out than to add something in? Mm-hmm. Why is that so easier for me? Why does that feel like an easy thing to execute? And that's why this section of prerequisites 
this step one. I think people can hang out here for a really long time. It doesn't have to be as long when you have a practitioner helping you like work through some of those things and like helping with the gobbledygook that's coming up. But this can take a while, especially if you're doing it on your own. So if you're at this phase and you're kind of like, shit, how long do I have to feel this way? Keep reminding yourself, I need to be eating enough. I need to be eating enough consistently. And what does that look like for me? And where does the gobbledygook come up? And can I get support around these, these feelings that I'm having that are making me less objective about how I'm supporting my body physically? Yeah. And I, I want to bring a clinical piece into this first part of the prerequisites as well is if you work with a practitioner who is well-versed in blood work or hair tissue, mineral analysis, or GI map, or, you know, any of these other functional medicine tests, we can see a couple (laughs) of different markers for if you are eating enough consistently. And this isn't to be, you know, a slap on the wrist or anything like that, because one of the things that's interesting about this, because I work with a lot of people with GI issues is there are certain conditions and symptoms that can prevent people from being able to eat enough comfortably or eating consistently or anything, because they feel like, oh, well, if I eat, you know, X amount then I have these really negative symptoms. So if that's something that's kind of preventing you from being able to take it past this step, that's okay, right? You're still, we're still Mm -hmm. here for this conversation for you, but you have to remember that if you're already not eating enough and not eating enough consistently or eating consistently, removing more foods is not going to help you reach the goal of eating enough. That doesn't make any sense, right? And so going back to the blood work, the other thing to keep in mind is even if you think you're eating enough and eating consistently and eating enough consistently, if you have something like hormonal imbalances or gut issues, or I mean, those two typically go hand in hand, you may not be absorbing all of the food Mm -hmm. that you are eating or that you are eating enough, right? Which then can also prevent us from moving on to the next step. But the thing to remember there again, is that removing foods is not going to help your absorption. Removing foods is not going to help you eating enough. And so that's where we have to go outside, right? From a practitioner's standpoint, it's looking at, okay, what are the different things that are getting in the way of us eating enough and eating consistently, right? So we talked about kind of the body image and relationship with food side, the clinical side comes in as well. Do we have enough stomach acid? What is our meal hygiene? Like, are you chewing your food adequately? Do you have adequate uh, digestive enzymes? What's the inflammation looking like in your system? You know, there's all these different things that we can address as practitioners that will help you start to eat enough absorb what you're eating and do that consistently as well before we even think about all these different therapeutic protocols, quote unquote, and then also these different claims that people are making that are probably all during this time floating around like little birds around your brain. That's like, oh, but you should cut out this and oh, but you should cut out this and like, oh, you have this health condition. So maybe cutting this out will fix everything for me. And then I'll be able to eat enough and then I'll have less symptoms and then all of these things. It sounds like a magic pill. It really does. And 99% of the time, that's not what it is. And it's actually going to do more harm than good. Yeah. I think I'm so glad that you brought up the clinical piece too, because I always refer to those as what tools are we bringing in to help support us to eat enough 
and eat more consistently. And tools are great. Tools can be used. Tools are supportive. They're going to be helping you to be able to absorb your nutrients. Like I say that to to some of my clients, I'm like, what's the, what's the use of like eating all of the things that you're doing if they're not getting to where they need to be? Like, so we want to make sure that it's able to get to where it needs to be. And we want to make sure that we're giving our body enough of it. And sometimes just eating enough blindly isn't going to get us there. So sometimes we do need tools. And this is even for clients that are dealing with anorexia or dealing with bulimia or anything like that. There are tools here too, that you need in order to help start that phase of being able to eat a little bit more. And sometimes those look a little bit different than other tools that I we might bring in for someone else as well. But all of the objectives when you're bringing in tools during this step one of this prerequisite is to help you be able to get the nutrients that you need in all of the various different parts throughout the body. And that's very different than executing like a therapeutic diet to something where it's really just kind of like masking and not really healing from supporting from the, from the start, from where this is percolating from, if you will. Right. Cause what I always say with these different food tools that we can use, I was just having this conversation like three different times yesterday with clients is like, even if you do find that there's a specific food that really makes you like super bloated, run to the bathroom, any of these things, there's a reason behind that. So while maybe in the short term, removing X food is going to help mitigate some of those symptoms, which can improve your quality of life. Right. Mm -hmm. But we also need to figure out why is that happening in the first place, right? Like what is kind of wonky in the body, which is a big term, right? But it's happening somewhere, mm -hmm. right? Like there is a reason that you're not able to adequately digest, absorb all of the things and why this food is causing some issues. So our job is to figure out why that is happening. A classic example is like anytime that you go to a GI doctor and you have issues and they can't figure out what's going on, or maybe they can, they're like, oh, well, you should do a low FODMAP diet. When all of the research says that that is not something that you're supposed to do long-term. And by long-term, I mean more than four to six weeks because there can be a lot of detrimental effects to that. Your beneficial bacteria can start to decrease and that can cause a lot of gut issues on its own. So instead of just being like, oh yes, I'm just going to follow this, not even blindly, right? You could have done a lot of research, but then the question becomes, okay, well, what is going on that removing these foods, which do help me with my general symptoms, why is that the case? right? Like what is going wrong on a deeper level that's creating some issue here. And again, always the disclaimers are like, well, yeah, if it's an allergy, if it's celiac disease, even if it's non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is harder to test for, but there are certain instances where removing certain foods will be helpful. But again, we got to figure out why that's the case before we're just like, oh, this is a forever thing for me because and it's, it's those yeah. things. It's not a forever thing. And what's, I think what's also really complicated that gets layered in there is 99% of the time you start to feel better. And then you're going to say, well, I don't need to give it up. Why would I give up something that makes me feel so good? Like I'm feeling so much better. My quality of life has improved. I'm not going to change anything now. I'm going to latch onto it and continue doing it. Or we don't have the tools or the support or the knowledge to dive deeper into it and start or to help get ourselves out of there. It's 
no does not help to do a low FODMAP diet for four to six weeks and then bounce right back to what you're doing before. We didn't rebuild anything. We didn't do what we needed to do. We didn't do the four R's. Like, you know what I mean? We didn't, not all four, like there's like, we don't believe in all of it, but we haven't done the things to rebuild and repair the stuff that we were doing to, to help with the symptom management. And, you know, myself included, I remember when I did my first restrictive protocol, I remember I was doing it for a time. I felt really good. And my friend said, well, how long are you going to do this? And I said, well, now forever. (laughs) Because you get attached to how you feel, you know, you're like, I feel really good. I feel really, but you know what? Slowly, you don't feel so great because you were never supposed to live and eat that way forever. Allergies aside, The other thing that happens there is that is exhausting to the nervous system and you Mm -hmm. can only stay in that alarm stage, which is like stage one, like, ah, everything's on fire. I'm stressed, you know, which does not it most of the time, it doesn't feel like that when you start a protocol. And this is in line with what we were talking about a couple of episodes ago, why it feels so good to make plans to do a fall reset it's a very similar mental situation to when you're like, okay, I finally found my like golden ticket. I'm going to find the thing. There is this stress relief that comes from feeling like I finally found something and this is really going to help. Right. And so it can be that that stress relief enough plus eliminating or adding, you know, whatever the thing is can create a situation where your symptoms do actually feel better. But the thing is, restriction and all of the different kind of lifestyle changes that are really required of these protocols or even eliminating one major food or food group or something like that. There's a massive strain and stress that that puts on your body and on your nervous system. And the longer that you stay there, the more that your minerals are going to be depleted, the more you're going to dig yourself into burnout. And sometimes that's the thing that people then reach this point. That's like, I just can't do this anymore. And then when you add the thing back in, you feel like absolute shit, but it's not the foods part or like the foods uh, fault. It's the quote fault of your body doing its job, you know, like your nervous system, just trying to protect you and be like, this has been too much for too long. And we really would love a break. And so this is, it's a really interesting and going back to what we were talking about before, it's really confusing, right? Because we're never taught how to interpret all of these different signals from our bodies. You know, we really only know like, well, that feels really, really bad. I know I don't want to do that, but then we don't necessarily know okay, well, how do we get from, well, that felt awful to like, I'd like to be a little bit more neutral. Like sometimes things are happening and sometimes things are not. And like, that's okay. But then how do we get from that very far extreme back to the middle? What we're not told is like, sometimes you have to go through and work through all of that burnout, both physically, but mentally, emotionally, and then how your relationship with food and body image can change when you're working through all of these different physical symptoms. And it's really hard because for a lot of people, like hard truth here, most people, when they get to, I would say like 99% of people, when they get to like an adrenal fatigue situation and extreme burnout, the number one question that I get is like, how do I lose weight with adrenal fatigue? And I'm sorry, but my answer is you can't. (laughs) You get, you get so many emails about this one question. It's wild. Like I literally have a whole folder in my Gmail of those specific emails. And it's so disheartening and also understandable to receive those as a clinician, because in a 
in a society where like your body size is basically your worth. And like, that is changing a little bit, but when you get to a place where your body is so burnt out that it's not in a safe situation, there's no way your body's going to let you lose weight. And I hate to tell you this, but the more that you try and push yourself into more restriction and more exercise, which is how you got here in the first place, you're not one going to dig yourself out of burnout that way. And you're also not going to be able to lose weight, which is really hard for someone to hear, which is why most of the time I don't respond to those emails (laughs) or I'll say like, here are a bunch of different resources that I can give you. But as you all know, if you've ever emailed me before, I'll say something like, I'm sorry, but I'm not your practitioner. And I can really only give you general advice. If you want more information, I have approximately 300 hours of podcasts that you can listen to. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that it's like coming up for me as we're talking about this is, man, I I feel for you, like all of the people, not you, Dana. I mean, I feel for you, but not that that I'm talking about the people who are listening. (laughs) Forget you. You're, you're nothing. You're just, you know, like my work wife and best friend, like all of the things. (laughs) But, um, but no, I feel like one of the things that is like, I think a really hard truth is what you just said about how you can't have that at the same time while healing this, because it's the behaviors that you engaged in unbeknownst to you that we're trying, that you were trying to lead to this outcome that led us here in the first place. And anyone who's telling you otherwise is not objective in how they're approaching this for you. And either they're lying because they don't want to believe it, or they're trying to sell you something like just straight up. They're trying to sell you something that they can't really offer. And one of the things that I always tell my clients, you can't possibly be eating enough if we're not in like consuming enough. And also if our body doesn't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. It can't possibly do that. And so we can't get to that place if we're not doing it. And I think that that is really hard, which leads us to kind of like, how do we even get to step two (laughs) in our our prerequisites, which is why like I refer to it often as like advanced recovery tools. Like this is like, now I'm thinking about specifically for my eating disorder clients, but you can work on these things and you can also like, in a way, the way that Dana and I kind of navigate this with our clients is that we can kind of do kind of both like simultaneously because we're coming at it from this perspective and you have us as your, as your guide, Mm -hmm. you know, to like help lead you through it and to help support you with that. But if you're doing it on your own, you're going to stay at step one for probably a while, you know, and that's what's hard. And then step two is how do I then decide what I can or shouldn't bring into my relationship with food? Because at this point, you've done so much work and it's now very precious and we don't want to just bring anything in and do any kind of any kind of just whatever kind of mess with that. Yeah. So TLDR is if you're doing this on your own, you basically do have to do all of step one before you get to step two, which we haven't even talked about what that is yet. But if you're working (laughs) with someone like us, who's just objective, right. And just trying to help you feel better. 
there may sometimes be a little bit of the step two woven into step one, especially if we're dealing with chronic symptoms, right? So let's talk about what is step two, right? So step one, we've got eating enough, eating consistently, eating enough consistently, one, two, three. When we get to the second part, once we've addressed a lot of the step one stuff, and we, as your practitioner, feel pretty confident that going to step two is not going to be triggering for you, then we can start to consider, okay, well, what are, what's the world and the research and all of these things saying about your specific health condition or what may be helpful for you? So the first part is, let's say, again, we're going back to thyroid because I've been doing a lot of research on that this week is let's say you have Hashimoto's autoimmune thyroid condition, right? So then what we look at is, okay, these things that you're finding, you know, clients will bring me stuff all the time. Oh, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? Is the information that is presented evidence-based, meaning what does the research say? But like Christina mentioned before, research can say a lot of shit, (laughs) right? So then where we go to, what does the majority of the research say? And this is where you can go to something like a meta-analysis, systematic review, basically like what are a lot of people agreeing on kind of thing, not just one random N equals one or like N equals 10 study that the media will like latch onto and be like, oh my God, coconut oil is gonna kill everybody. Study of 10 people. No one died. (laughs) That was an extreme example. But what does the majority of the evidence say, right? And then as long as and only if something is evidence-based and a majority of the studies and everything are supporting this claim or whatever it is, then we look into, okay, well, is this applicable for you based on your symptoms, known reactions to certain foods, different health conditions, AKA, do you match up with what the people that these studies were done on? So an example we use all the time here is like keto, epilepsy, different mental health conditions and stuff like that. Because a lot of doctors will recommend keto for something like PCOS. It's like, there's been no research done on keto for PCOS. So why are we recommending this? Yeah, I think that happens a lot. And um, one of the things that I was thinking about too, it's like, it's kind of like comparing apples and oranges, like even down to like the growth of apples and oranges. We were talking about this before the episode. They need different things, right? Like, like, the way that we take care of our plants in our home are going to be different than in one room versus another. And like some of them need more light, some of them need more shade and all the different things. And so when we try to take something and then apply it to the masses, sure, it can make a really great headline, right? But if we're taking something research, like that's quote unquote research-based and then trying to apply it to all these different things, we have absolutely no evidence to support that it's actually going to support that. Like you're saying, there's no evidence to port, support keto for PCOS. And quite frankly, I could imagine it causing a lot more problems with PCOS than anything else because sugar management, all of the things, um, depending on what type of PCOS you have, but that's a whole nother episode. But the idea is how do we then manage that? And we cannot compare apples to oranges and then pretend that it's going to be applicable to you. So the applicable for you part can get also really murky too. And so that's why so much of the work that we do in the step one is so important. And it takes a while to even get to 
is it applicable? Yeah. And then even if you get to the place of, okay, it is evidence-based, it is applicable for you. Again, let's go back to the Hashimoto's conversation. Although this is going to have to be a whole other episode on like, well, is gluten <laughs> even a thing for Hashimoto's? I have a lot of things to Everyone say. Everyone is going to email us now saying, when are you going to talk about this? Like we've we been beating around the bush. <laughs> we will. Um, there have been some new studies that have come out about this too. So I'm excited to talk about those, but let's say actually Hashimoto's is a bad example, but let's just say thyroid in general. Okay. <laughs> so let's say you found something that is evidence-based, like there's a majority of research supports it. Let's say you also have thyroid conditions and a lot of the stuff that, you know, these things are saying also match up with what you have, right? Then the biggest stickler that I would say is, is it appropriate and safe for you? And this is where a lot of people get stuck. There's no way if you have a severe history or an active eating disorder or disordered eating patterns for like a really significant time, or if you're in stress or burnout or wherever you are in the spectrum of things, most likely removing something is not going to be applicable or safe for you to do if we're thinking about the threat of do no harm. And so I think that's something that's like important. And I understand as an individual, you might be really, really attached to it, but I think that's where the dire of, okay, how do I then navigate what is prudent for me to remove versus what is a, maybe this will do something versus maybe it won't. And where does that line go? And I think a lot of times this is where the work of a practitioner can help you define that for yourself because it's really hard to decide if something really is appropriate for you. And that is a hard question to answer when we have this kind of history and when we have have had and are still attached to what could be a physical outcome that we still desire. That is understandable to desire given the culture that we live in and all of the things. How do I decide whether or not it's safe for me when I have all of these things kind of living there at the same time, all the gobbledygook? Right. And one point I want to drive home too is this third part is, is this appropriate or safe for you? You don't skip this even if you've never had an eating disorder before. This yeah, is no. for everybody, right? Even if you've never had, you know, self-identified like disordered eating and eating disorder, everybody's had body image stuff, right? Because here's what can happen, right? So, and we've seen this happen many, many times is people who will, you know, come to us, we've, they've tried to go through the steps and other stuff like that, or maybe they've tried to just implement one of these kind of protocols on their own. As we always talk about restriction leads to overcompensation, binging, all of these other things. Even if you found that for whatever reason, consuming X food does exacerbate your symptoms. Let's say you cut it out for a specific period of time, but then for you know whatever reason, the restriction was too much, which always happens at some point. 
And then you eat said food and then you have a really negative reaction to it. Again, one, remember we haven't figured out why, right? But then you can get into this really vicious cycle of like, oh my gosh, this food is really bad for me. So then you're con kind of like an emotional and restriction roller coaster with this food is, oh, I have to eliminate this or X is going to happen. And it could have been that the consumption that you had of that food was just too much for you at that time because of whatever composition of your gut bacteria or blah, 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 inflammation, all the things, right? But this is, this is something that we want to avoid happening. And another thing that can happen a lot is when people have made a significant amount of progress in their relationship with food and body image and stuff like that, even the thought of trying to minimize or restrict or take out a food, even for a therapeutic reason is so triggering that they then go binge on that food, regardless of whether or not it gives them symptoms. There's a really interesting component that happens here with the adrenals. <laughs> and I just want to bring this in because this is kind of why this happens is when you eat a food that your body has a response to, you get a surge of cortisol. If you are already burned out, that surge of cortisol feels really good. Cause you're like, Oh my God, I'm awake. Like I, things are working. My <laughs> hormones are good, but it's kind of an artificial spike, right? So when you come down for that, from that, you feel awful. So this is why sometimes it can feel like, Oh, but I can eat that food. And like, that feels really good. And then you're like, Oh no, wait, no, I absolutely can't eat that food. Or like maybe the response is always really negative, but we're trying to avoid that whole situation whatsoever by trying to guide you safely to manage your symptoms in a way that is evidence-based applicable for you and appropriate for you. It may take longer than just like, Oh, well, I heard about this protocol and like, I'm going to start it on Monday and just shoot in the dark and see what happens. A lot of people do that. And for a lot of people, or some people at least, it they find it to be helpful in the short term. But again, is it that mitigation of the stress response because you feel like you're doing something? Or is it because you're not reacting to certain foods because you're not eating them? But then also, why are we reacting to these foods in the first place, right? It's a lot more complicated than it seems on the surface. And that's why we wanted to do this episode. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. We wanted to do this episode to let you guys know, how do we do this when we live in an all or nothing world? And how do we then discern what works, what would be therapeutically supportive or maybe not so much? And how do we kind of weed through the confusion? And as you've been listening throughout this entire thing, I also think now we can all understand why we land in the nutrition jungle and what I've been referred to as like food decision paralysis, where it's like you're standing in front of the refrigerator and you're like, I don't know what the hell I can and can't eat. I have absolutely no idea. And so it's really easy to just say, I'm going to put that off. And just it digs deeper and deeper and deeper. And then we're definitely not eating enough. And so... We see you, we feel you, and we know that there are ways to support you without restricting unnecessarily. And a lot of times the research that you're reading and that we're latching onto is not as definitive as it's presented. 
most of the time it is not as <laughs> as it is presented. Yeah. Um, and we will definitely have to do that thyroid episode, kind of an update on the research. I'm thinking we do a PCOS episode too. Like we would love to hear from you all, you know, what are these specific health conditions that you would love us to do dedicated episodes on? Um, I think that would be really fun because there are certain situations where you can, like we can make nutrition changes and that can make an impact. But again, like we mentioned a long time ago on this episode, earlier in the episode at this point, there's a very specific way that you need to do that. And it needs to be the right set of circumstances to avoid triggering things, whether it's mental, emotionally with your relationship with food or whether it's physically with, you know, gut symptoms or hormonal symptoms. And then the crossover of that without presenting this kind of threat to the nervous system that puts you in that alarm stage where it's like, oh my God, everything's on fire. And then that on its own can create a lot of hormonal imbalances, gut issues, mineral imbalances, and all of that on its own can create either different or very similar symptoms to what you were experiencing, which led you to seek out these protocols in the first place. So it's confusing. We know why everybody ends up here because we've been here, right? Personally, we've been there. (laughs) We've been there for a lot of our clients through these situations, right? All like the big thing that we wanted to help you all with this episode is how can you try to analyze this as objectively as possible? And we would love to hear your follow-up questions to this episode because I'm sure that we could do a part two, three, four, (laughs) everything on this. Um, And definitely let us know as well what types of health conditions you would love us to dig into the research for. Because while we, we love having guests on to talk about specific health conditions, I think it's also really fun for us to just also dig into the research as people who don't necessarily specialize in, you know, X health condition. You're a little bit more objective that way, right? Because you can just look and see as what is the lay of the land, right? And then how does this apply if this situation comes upon us with people in these different kind of circumstances and who are at different points of these prerequisites and everything like that. Hey friends, it's Dana and thanks so much for listening to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast today. Find us on social media at Wholehearted Eating Pod on Instagram and at wholeheartedeating.com for more information about working with Dana and Christina for one-on-one nutrition counseling. If you love the show, we would love you forever if you'd share an episode with your family and friends or tag us on social media or use a five-star rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts to help more people find the show. Check out patreon.com slash eating to help support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, bonus episodes with us and our guests, episode discussions, new resources we're creating for Patreon, and so much more. If you have questions for us, feedback on the show, potential topics or guests you'd love to have on, shoot us an email at hello at wholeheartedeating.com and we'll see you next week.